Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons and my aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Life was good in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve knew nothing of meaning or suffering or purpose. They lived only according to the will of God, enjoying the fruits of the garden and the pleasures of each other. Yet their naivety was shattered with a single bite from the fruit of the tree of knowledge thus condemning them and all of humanity to the tragedy of choice. Setting aside the theology of the biblical origin story, focus instead on the distinctness of humanity which has afforded our species alone. That of choice, the ability to determine one's actions in the next moment and each one that follows. While we may be drawn into arguments of free will and determinism, prima facie, human existence is characterised by choice. However, our choices are not infinite. They are limited by circumstances often beyond immediate control. Our bodies limit our physical capabilities. Our minds limit our cognitive adventures. Our social class limits our mobility. And the era of our birth brings with it a cultural epoch or a technological milieu which constrains our choices to the practically possible or at least to the proximally imagined. Yet despite these seeming limitations, our choices are virtually immeasurable. We can choose to open the fridge and search longingly for another dopamine fix, or we can choose to strap on our running shoes. We can choose to embrace our lover or quarrel over an unwashed mug in the sink. We can choose to open a dust-covered book on our side table or scroll through yet another meaningless feed curated to satisfy desires we didn't even know we had. And it is from this abundance of choice that we find ourselves adrift in an ocean of dread, an ever-present anxiety that questions our every move and hesitation. In a universe of choice, how can we ever know what to do? What calculus should we perform to determine which choices are the right choices? Do we look to our heart or our mind? Do we look to others or to God? In the end, there is only one place that we can turn to to make decisions. Inward and to ourselves. In this introduction, I've covered a few of the core concepts of a philosophy known as existentialism. You've probably heard of this term in relation to the idea of an existential crisis. And this could be broad, as in the end of the world, or very specific, as in what is my purpose here in this life? But existentialism as a philosophy is not quite so dramatic. Rather than asking what is our purpose, it's more of an acceptance that life doesn't have a purpose, but from this we must then rationalise how to live the most authentic life. So in this episode, we'll explore how existentialists got to that point and what they really mean by an authentic life. Interestingly, existentialism is a label often applied retrospectively to philosophers when contemporary thinkers connect the dots among different ways of approaching similar problems. Indeed, many of those still alive when it became popularised as a term rejected the association with existentialism altogether. This is largely because it is difficult to define the concept concretely, as existentialism is not so much a philosophy in the neatly packaged epistemological sense, it's more of a current or a cultural theme by which the plight of the human condition is imagined, realised and ultimately reconciled. 
It evolved from disparate though related ideas which extend as far back as Aristotle and Plato. But it was two 20th century philosophers, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, who came to explicitly outline its themes. This eccentric couple tended to be caricaturized existentialists, as described in the opening of Thomas Flynn's book, A Very Short Introduction to Existentialism. Quote, Existentialism is commonly associated with left-bank Parisian cafes and the family of philosophers Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, who gathered there in the years immediately following the liberation of Paris at the end of World War II. One imagines offbeat, avant-garde intellectuals attached to their cigarettes, listening to jazz as they hotly debate the implications of their newfound political and artistic liberty. The mood is one of enthusiasm, creativity, anguished self-analysis, and freedom, always freedom, end quote. Sartre and de Beauvoir broadly defined existentialism as an ethical theory, although it may also be thought of as a metaphysical one, which places freedom at the core of human existence. To explore this further, we need to consider what it means to be human and the age-old philosophical notion of essence. This began with Greek philosopher Plato, who asserted that everything has an essence, something which makes it what it is, its isness. A chair, for example, can be defined in a certain way. It has a form and a purpose. Its essence is something that is to be sat on. It has four legs, or maybe three. Maybe it has a back, maybe it does not. But regardless of small variations in these properties, the essence of a chair is fixed and inherent to it. A chair is a chair. We may be able to sit on other objects, but only a chair is purposefully designed for that purpose. Only a chair has the essence of a chair. And a chair, as do all objects, have similar fixed properties or similar forms. Animate objects, animals and other creatures also have properties and forms, and they interact with other objects in certain ways. The form of each object is clearly definable and leads to everything having an essence, including people. Now, we can look at a person and broadly define the physical characteristics that make them human. Two legs, two arms, and so on. We could even dissect each of these parts and then write a description of what each does and, as far as we know, how it does it. We could go further still and explore the atoms and electrons and quarks that make up all things. In the Age of Enlightenment, that's exactly what happened. All things began to be reduced to their very physical essence. Once we understand the physical properties of a thing, then what more is there to say about it? This is a so-called positivist line of thinking, but there is a problem with it. Unlike all other objects, the human being has a non-tangible essence, a consciousness which it can project and which can conjure systems of meaning and morality, which seem to bear no relation to other objects in the world. Categories of intention, character, duty, virtue, righteousness, and love. We can analyze the brain under a microscope or using an MRI machine, but which neurons contain our morality or our virtues? These systems cannot be understood in terms of their physical properties. We may agree on certain meaning systems from time to time, but there is no concreteness to this. Humans vary widely in how they construct meaning systems, and these evolve over time, sometimes spontaneously. Are these localized adaptations or Do they reflect the great diversity of possibility that each human life is endowed with? The essence of a human, then, beyond the physical form, is difficult to pin down in anything other than broad generalizations. 
To do so seems to contradict the very nature of what it means to be human, to be individual and nuanced and beyond form, to have the intrinsic freedom to make choices. This begs the question then, does the essence of a human being come from the body, the mind or the soul? If these intangible things are emergent properties of the brain, and we can dissect the brain into synapses and neurons and atoms and quarks, then what is the source of the essence? Is it simply a case that we just haven't yet dissected the brain carefully enough or thoroughly enough yet, or will we never understand where the spark of consciousness comes from? Or, more compelling still, why it acts in the way that it does? Even if we could understand every circuit of the brain, will we ever really know why we are the way we are? This question seems to transcend questions of determinism and free will. And we could argue about that, but the notion that we begin with an essence and that this is difficult to define is of central importance to the philosophy of existentialism. Existence, then, is a problem. If we can't really define the essence of a human, then we could look to other explanations that contextualize existence. For instance, our meaning, our purpose for being here. If we knew that, then the question of existence would be redundant. Many have turned to God for this explanation, for what man or woman could question the will of the Creator. The 18th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was a pious man who felt that existence comes down to faith. We exist as individuals, yet we must accord with de-individualized moral norms or universals. How can we be true to ourselves, our essence, and simultaneously to the universal morality which governs all of our actions? He cites the story of Abraham in, the, in chapter 22 of Genesis, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Abraham, as a God-fearing man, prepares to sacrifice Isaac when a messenger from God arrives just in the nick of time, to stop him. This is a paradox for Kierkegaard, as Abraham must follow an individual path by following the will of God, yet to do so he must dissipate the moral law of God not to kill. Was this even the will of God, or was it a, de a deception? Abraham cannot be sure which path is the correct path. For Kierkegaard, the only answer could be to follow what he called subjective truth, what was right for Abraham. And as such, by making the subjective choice, this must be the right choice for all of humanity. However, with this truth comes a perpetual anxiety, the conflict between inner truth, what I think and feel is right, and conformity to objective truth derived by the crowd, what is expected of me. Ultimately, one can only have faith that one's subjective truth is worthy of God. This is what Kierkegaard thought. But the idea of subjective truth Anxiety and authenticity is a theme that flows throughout existentialist philosophy. And while the term existentialism may not have been uttered during Kierkegaard's time, it was embraced by Sartre. His philosophy put the meat on the bones of previous thoughts surrounding the nature of being human and the conflict of subjective truth suggested centuries earlier. Sartre began with the fundamental assumption we spoke about earlier that all things have an essence and that this comes from existence. But for Sartre, this was backwards for humans. First comes existence, then comes essence. At first telling, this notion sounds ridiculous. How can something exist before it has an essence? It is essence which gives something its existence. For instance, until four legs and a flat surface form a chair, then a chair cannot exist. It is only this inherent essence that allows the chair to exist. Take then a human being. 
the essence of a human, the very notion of a person, as broad as that may be conceptually, cannot exist independently of its essence. Think about it, literally. Can something exist that cannot be conceived of? For anything to exist, its essence must first be conceived of, imagined and realised. Thought of this way, nothing exists until it is experienced by us. The infant is no more aware of the chair than had it not existed at all. It is only when it grasps the essence of a chair that it sees the chair for what it is. If there is a God, then it follows that the essence of a human, the specific human, not just the cardboard cutout of the human, preceded its existence. The essence of each soul was divined by God himself. But if there is no God, as Sartre believed, then there can be no essence preceding existence. Nothing comes before. Nothing imagined you until you arrived to imagine yourself. Sartre says, and excuse the gender-specific language here, quote, Man, first of all, exists, encounters himself, surges upward in the world, and defines himself afterwards. There is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man simply is. Not that he is simply what he conceives himself to be, but what he wills. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. That is the first principle of existentialism. End of quote. What follows from this realisation is that if there is no essence preceding the existence of a human, then there can be no predefined morality, no human nature to speak of, and thus all conceptions of morality are invented by humans for one reason or another. This is what makes life somewhat complicated and leads to tremendous anxiety as we struggle to know what is the right thing to do, what is the right way to live. It would be a lot easier if there was a God and a divine law. We would be off the hook, as it were. Or as Sartre put it, quote, The existentialist finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an unchallengeable heaven, end quote. Many philosophers grapple with this conundrum and the true impact of the Age of Enlightenment began to be realised during the 18th and 19th centuries. Famously, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, reflecting on the advent of science and positivism, declared, God is dead. Existentialism is the logical extrapolation of a godless universe, where morality exists only in its specific subjective experience within the individual. Although it needn't neglect theology altogether, as for Kierkegaard, that's where faith comes in. But for Sartre and others, it's necessary to examine more closely the human experience of subjectivity to understand what it means to truly live a good life. The key word here, again, is freedom. Without a framework to situate the human condition within, anything goes. Humanity is both blessed and cursed with this ultimate freedom. Because the essence of a person cannot precede its existence, each individual is responsible for creating their own essence. Consider the analogy of an artist. Before she sets ink upon the canvas, the artwork she will create does not yet exist but in her mind. It has no essence. The canvas is blank. As she adds layer upon layer of paint, the work takes form and eventually arrives at its essence. However, where this analogy reaches its limit is in the specific conception of that essence in, in each individual who happens to gaze upon the artwork, for it means something different to each person. Art is aesthetic. So too is human life. When discovering our essence, we can turn outward and adopt the meaning systems found in ideas from others, or we can turn inward and follow our own path. That is the absolute freedom that we have. 
Yet we are surrounded by meaning systems and context. Our lives are influenced by culture, history, politics, economics, society, and our bodies themselves. This may imply a lack of free will, as we discussed back in episode 31. But for the existentialist, these factors make little difference as we must still make choices regardless as we cannot be anything other than a product of our environment. To some, this might be thought of as determinism, but to the existentialist, this is known as situatedness or facticity. Situatedness constrains the limits of possibility, yet it also tempts us into absolving our responsibility for being the truest version of ourselves. Human freedom is not haphazard, random or arbitrary. It is very specific. The challenge, the source of anxiety, is not that we must choose between an infinite number of possibilities, but that we must find our true selves against a backdrop of competing influences vying for our attention. This may be simply politics. We can follow a way of being which reflects the view of the majority. We can identify with a group, a culture, a society, or even a morality. Each of these levels of situatedness can provide us the necessary structures to exist and to be accepted. However, do these truly allow us to be who we really are? To be what the existentialist would say is authentic. Sartre provides a useful example of both freedom and authenticity when he describes a student who approached him for advice. This was in France during the Second World War. The student's mother was ill and his brother had already died fighting. But this student felt a calling to join the resistance and fight for the freedom of his country. But his mother needed him too. He was conflicted. Should he stay and look after his dying mother or leave her to fight for a cause greater than himself? What was the morally correct choice? The student said to Sartre, In the end, it is the feeling that counts. The direction it is pushing me is really the one I ought to choose. But how does one judge the strength of a feeling? One might be reminded never to consult a philosopher for advice, as Sartre's reply to the vexed student was simply, You are free, therefore choose. Authenticity is entwined with freedom and existentialism. Indeed, it is the greatest problem faced by all humans. Because there are no general rules of morality, there are no limits to freedom on the path to discover the most authentic essence of the self. There are different trains of thought on just what an authentic life is within existentialist philosophy. Indeed, it is why many would reject the claim that they are existentialists at all. The Stoics, for instance, may say the most authentic life is akin to the freest life, not caring about expectations and what others think. There's an obvious individualist flavour to existentialism, and it takes us back to our recent thoughts on libertarianism. But as is the case with freedom, it need not be just that. What is important about being authentic and living an authentic life is being the version of you that you were meant to become. The problem is finding out what that is, and becoming it despite the forces that are trying to deflect you away from it, including your own conscience, which works against you. The good life, the best life, the authentic life, is not an easy life. It is a life of taking responsibility for your choices and for forging your own path. But don't be dismayed by the choices that confront you. Because as the Dutch philosopher Spinoza said some 400 years ago, no limit to the imagining of the human being has yet been found. And that rings true today. The constant temptation is to make excuses for our lack of authenticity. We are required to transcend the limits of our situation. Admittedly, the lines between facticity, that is, the limits of our situatedness, and our personal responsibility to be authentic despite these limitations are vague at best. What is clear 
is that it is only the individual who can truly know whether they are living their authentic life. Self-awareness can only come from within. What follows now is one of Sartre's most well-known ideas, that of malvoifois, or bad faith. To live inauthentically is to live in bad faith. Sartre speaks of two forms of bad faith. The more common form tries to collapse our transcendence, our possibility, into our facticity, our circumstances. This would be to claim that our lot is predetermined, therefore we do not need to take responsibility for our choices or for what happens to us. It is just the way it is. Another version of bad faith allows another person to determine the identity to which we try to conform. This version is rooted in our interpersonal relations and what Sartre calls our being for others. He provides an example of a waiter acting in bad faith in his classic novel Nausea. Clearly not destined for that line of work, the waiter tries too hard to be a waiter, to look like a waiter, but it's just not within him. It's not who he is, but it's who he is expected to be. His movements are reckless and hurried, yet his face is incongruent with his movement. He's merely playing at being a waiter, yet his consciousness is anything but. We often fall into the trap of pushing our authenticity out into the future. I'll become my true self one day when the right circumstances permit. The authentic self is possibility, but not actuality. However, this is just the type of thinking which Sartre implores us to transcend. And while it may appear that existentialism is a cynical philosophy which denies meaning and doubts our ability to find our true selves, it is really about promise and potential. You've just got to stop putting it off or making excuses and get out there and act. Yes, freedom brings with it anxiety and many choices are made in bad faith. But human existence is a gift where we can each find our own essence if we would only direct our energy toward finding our most authentic self. Like a painter gazing upon a canvas, what brush strokes will you make? Sartre writes, Existentialism is optimistic. It is a doctrine of action. So what actions will you take to live an authentic life? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.